good morning, everyone. I am uh, Pastor Caleb. If we haven't met or if you're watching online and you don't know me, um, if you do, it's good to see you again. Um, you know, so during the pandemic, I, uh, I kind of got out of the habit of brushing my teeth in the morning. Because you really only need to brush your teeth once a day. But in the morning, you do it for everyone else. Like, at night, you do it for dental health. In the morning, you do it for everybody else. But when you're wearing a mask, it doesn't matter. So I'm really self-conscious this morning. Like, keep your six-feet distance, or I will halitosis you away from me accidentally. So um, so we are uh, here starting this, this new series, uh, Asking for a Friend, and some really interesting questions have come in already, um, and there's still time to get more in. We, uh, we were beginning to work through uh, what the rest of summer would look like, and there are some weeks that i got to be honest with you are pretty lame. Um, so ask more questions so we have, have better topics. Uh, but one of the, the questions that came in uh, was an interesting one. Um, and it was, why does the Apostle Paul hate women? Um, and if you've been in a disciple Bible study or a covenant Bible study or um, you know, in, in a Sunday school class, chances are you have heard this question before. Um, because it's easy to read through the Pauline epistles and be like, man, what is this guy saying? And I think part of, uh, part of what's going on is that we tend to think about how Paul feels about women uh, beginning with something like 1 Corinthians 14 where he tells women to remain quiet in worship. But I'm not sure that's the best place to begin. Husbands, do not make snide comments right now. <laughs> Believe me, it's... Not worth it. Like, I, I offer to you uh, where I think the discussion of Paul's view of women in the church especially should begin, and that's Romans chapter 16. So Romans is, is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, which is why we call it Romans. Um, and in verse uh, 16, he sends his greetings and, uh, and, and gives some greater insight into Uh, into this letter. In Romans 16, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencri. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, Phoebe is delivering this letter to the Romans. Which doesn't just mean that she's like the FedEx man dropping it off at the door and going home. The person who, who is delivering a letter in the ancient world, they will, the expectation is that they are going to bring it to where it's going, that they're going to read it, and they're going to answer any questions people may have about it. Which means that Paul has essentially sent Phoebe to go and preach in Rome. And this is kind of our our beginning framework to look at how Paul is looking at the role of women in the church. He goes on in in chapter 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, which are both 
female names. My co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risk their lives for me not only, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, another female, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. And he goes on, and and there are uh, about 20 names, about half of them are women, who he is commending for their work in the local church. So the question becomes, how does this same Paul, who writes to the Romans, sends a woman with the letter to read the letter, to explain the letter in the life of the local church, how does he also say something like... uh, women should remain silent in churches they are not allowed to speak. There's a, the, 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 there's, there's a disconnect here, and hopefully today we will begin to unpack that and understand why we see some of these passages that when we read them, they make us go, oh, Paul's going to get canceled. But we'll begin uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter four or chapter five today, beginning at verse twenty-two. Which really we shouldn't begin at verse twenty-two because verse twenty-two doesn't even have a verb in it. It relies on what comes before, and I want to tell you all about it. But I promised Pastor Serena I wouldn't because that's what she's preaching on later. So Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-two. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul goes on to say, children, obey your parents. Uh, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves with kindness. And this whole section is what the ancient world called a household code. Uh, If you go back and read Aristotle in uh, his work Politics, he talks about the household code setting up life for the entire kingdom, for the entire uh, nation, for the the entire tribe together. Aristotle makes the case that if you want to have a well-ordered kingdom, you have to have well-ordered households. And a well-ordered kingdom, of course, is one where the king is in charge. And there's no questioning the king's authority. What the king says goes. 
And the people who are under the king do what the king says explicitly. But then those who are under the people who are under the king do what is said by those who are above them. So there is this clear stratification of who is in charge and what direction the power flows for Aristotle, for most of the ancient Greek world. But Paul does something unique. Instead of this one-way structure, he builds accountability into a household code, and it is um, to our best knowledge of scholars the first time we see this in ancient literature. A household code that moves from this strictly top-down way of doing um, doing the the ordering of a household, doing the ordering of a nation, to talking about instead accountability and mutual submission. But we still have this this kind of icky language of wives submit to your husbands. And I don't know exactly why Paul chooses to break up wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. Um, but I was reading a, a New Testament scholar from England, uh, Cynthia Moore, and she offered this suggestion. And I don't know if she's right, but I found it very compelling. She said, Paul is inviting the marriage partners into doing the thing that they don't want to do. Because here's the thing. As husbands, we have no problem submitting to our wives. None. Like, who's seen the movie uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding? A few of you. My favorite line in Big Fat Greek Wedding is when uh, the, the, the daughter is talking to the mother, and the mother says, your father may be the head, but I'm the neck. <laughs> I point him in the direction he's going to go. And I think there's truth to that, right? Like in, in most uh, marriages that I have observed, husbands tend to be pretty okay with submitting to their wives on the vast majority of things. What we are not good at is giving up the last piece of cake, is giving up the biggest chicken breast, is... Uh, getting up in the middle of the night to go with the baby rather than saying, hey, your baby's crying. Go take care of that. We aren't good at loving selflessly. I know I'm not good at lo loving selflessly. Like, I'm really not good at loving selflessly. Like, it, it's, it, it is a struggle to, for, for Cindy to get, like, a scrap of food in our house, much less our children. Um, so, so Cynthia Moore is making this, this observation that perhaps the reason why Paul is inviting wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to submit to their or to, to love their wives is because for husbands, submission is easier than love, and for wives, love is easier than submission. That what it looks like to mutually care for each other is to do the thing that's hard. 
And like I said, I don't know if she's right, but I find that very compelling, at least for me. Because Cindy is so ridiculously self-giving. Like, she does not struggle to love selflessly. And that's all I have to say about that. But as we go further, we see it's, it's not just the husband and wife relationship that Paul is talking about. And it's, it's, he goes on to talk about children and slaves because in, like the, the ancient household and the modern family are not the same thing. I, they just aren't, right? Like the ancient household, you have the potter familius, you have the woman of the house, you have children, you have slaves, you have, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whoever else is sort of blowing in and out family-wise. And, and there is this deep understanding of, of kinship and, and, um, and the way these relationships work. Um, so that in uh, the majority of ancient households, you have, you know, the Potter Familius, the, the father of the house, the head honcho, the big cheese. He's the guy who goes out into the marketplace and does all of the buying and trading for the family. So if you are a sheep farmer, it is the dad who goes out with the sheep. I shouldn't even say the dad because that is a modern family sort of thing. It is the father, the vader, who goes out with the sheep and trades it for corn or potatoes or rice or bread or, or whatever you're, you're, you're getting in the marketplace. But then inside the household, like the, the ranking female has absolute control. Like there is no backtalking mama in, again, you shouldn't use mama because that's a modern family, not an ancient household. But you get what I'm saying, right? These are, these are not the same units. And Paul is taking this understanding which had been put forward by the culture as a way not only to shape the household, but also to shape the nation, and says the kingdom of God is not like the Greco-Roman culture. It is not this stratified, you have father, mother, kids, slaves, the kingdom of God is a place where God, who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, who is all-knowing, who is above all, purposefully chooses to submit and love us. The, 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 the God who is revealed in Jesus is not a God who expects nothing but worship and sacrifice and offering to flow up the mountaintop to Him, but this is a God who embraces humanity, who takes on the incarnation, who dies in order that we might know and have a relationship with the Father. The whole point of Ephesians chapter 5, the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, it's, 
in a sense, he is playing on these Aristotelian themes to say, hey, your household should look like the kingdom. But what he's really doing is he's exposing what the kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom where God, who even though he rightly can stand at the very top and be like, yes, everything should come to me. I am just the colonial master of everything. Instead, we see a God who comes down and shows love and care and mercy that is, uh, that is completely foreign to the expectations of the Greco-Roman world. So is Ephesians chapter 5 into chapter 6 about Paul hating women? No. No, I think that's, that's, that's a pretty, it's, it's, it's hard to make that case. Unless we strip everything else we know about the ancient world and everything else we know about what Paul has said prior to this um, from these passages. We're going to continue talking about this today because this is fascinating. Like it is, like truly, every time I have been in a disciple Bible study, we get to the Pauline epistles and someone comes in and slams their Bible and says, I want to have a conversation with that Paul. but maybe Paul isn't as bad a dude as we assume. So now we get to the bad one. The one where Paul really seems to be sticking his foot in his mouth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we'll begin here at verse 26. And Paul writes, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, but do not forget and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. 
So I want to paint the picture for you of what uh, worship in a first century synagogue looks like and what worship in many synagogues throughout the world even now looks like. The men sit on one side of the room and the women sit on the other. Um, If you go to Jerusalem even now and go to the Western Wall, there is a men's section of the wall and there's a women's section of the wall. And uh, there's a entertaining story from a few years back where um, there was an orthodox rabbi who thought the women were praying too loudly and he threw his chair over the partition that separates the men's section from the women's section to try and get them to be quiet. In other words, this is, this is something, this is a thing <laughs> in, in Judaism. Um, so, so the women are on one side, the men are on the other. And the service is taking, um, is, is likely going on in uh, like high Hebrew, right? So, so English is, is a unique language in that we don't really stratify how English is spoken. Like we don't really have like high English. I mean, we have grammatically correct English. But like the words of grammatically correct English and the words of, you know, what we speak when I go to my aunt and uncle's house, um, you know, in Bihalia, like we use the same words, just sometimes they're in a different order and, you know, you drop some syllables. But for most other languages, there is a definite difference between like the high form of the language, the formal form of the language, and what people actually speak. And this is one of the ways that in large parts of the world, the educated remain uh, in a place of, of power over those who can't afford education. Because in the marketplace, you speak the high form of the language rather than the local form of what is going on um, in, in the community. So here in the synagogue, you have the, the service going on in high Hebrew, which you only speak if you've been educated, and you've only been educated if you're male. So chances are, what's going on here is that um, this service is going on where a male rabbi is talking in man language to the men in the room, and the women in the room are getting bored because they're, it's Greek to them. Yeah, it's not Greek, it's Hebrew. No, and, and this still goes on in some parts of the world. Um, uh, I, I can't remember who I... I read this from, but they were talking about being in a, uh, an Orthodox Jewish service. And the women were bored, and they were talking amongst themselves. And the rabbis, on multiple occasions, said, Will you be quiet? We're trying to have church here. So chances are, what, what is happening here is that Paul is referring to these times when, because of the, the stratification of the service... There is boredom that has set in, and there are distracting conversations that are not 
participating in the act of worship. Now, there's a bigger question of why aren't they educating women, and why is this stratification going on? Why aren't they having the language? Why aren't they doing the service in the language of the people? And that's all perfectly reasonable. But what we see is that in you know, the 19th and 20th century here in North America, people took this passage and said, See, women shouldn't be teaching men. They shouldn't be talking in church. Ladies. But that's not what's going on here. I mean, if, if, you, go, if you go just a couple chapters earlier to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, uh, Paul writes, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. As It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, why would... Just a couple of chapters earlier, Paul be saying, hey, women, when you're praying and prophesying in church, make sure your head is covered. If he's going to go on in a little bit and say, hey, don't do anything. Just sit there and be quiet. Like, there's a disconnect there. But I think part of what is going on here is that, that the church is not fully separated from Judaism yet. So Christians are here in the synagogue, and they are participating in the life of the synagogue. And, and Paul doesn't want them to be seen as these rebellious jerks that nobody likes because they go into the synagogue and, and make problems for everybody else. I mean, I think this is even part of the, the head covering because there's this, um, you know, he's saying there's a cultural expectation. The cultural expectation is men, keep your head uncovered. Women, cover your head. Like, we know in Christ, like, neither male nor female. Like, it doesn't matter. But seriously, like, you don't need to pick a fight you don't need to pick a fight with. Like, I think this is what, what Paul is doing. Like, we need to understand that these letters are written to a particular people in a particular place who have particular problems. And my best guess is that what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, you're right. Like, it doesn't matter if your head is covered or not, but, like, why are you picking this fight? Like, it doesn't matter. Just get along with people. Like, you don't need to be viewed as those annoying, rebellious, Jesus-following people. Like, it doesn't matter. Get along with people. At least that's what I think is going on. Like I said, I could be wrong. I wasn't there. But that's what makes sense to me. Like that, that, That's what I think is, is compelling. And, and, and I think this is our best way of understanding some of these difficult passages of Paul. Because you look at Paul in his entirety. And he is using female apostles to carry out the work of the gospel. He is celebrating female leadership in churches. He's giving instruction to women who are leading in churches on how to do it better. And then you have two verses that somehow, by some of our brothers and sisters in the West over the last 200 years, have been taken out of context to say, hey, 
All that stuff that Paul did with women in ministry, they don't count. What he really meant was this. You need to be quiet. Don't say anything. Ask your husbands if you're confused. Which is nonsense. It's nonsense. Um, so, so back to this, this big question we're dealing with today. Does Paul hate women? Does Paul find women to be inferior? Does Paul think that women just need to shut up and be quiet in church? I think the answer is pretty clearly no. But I think what Paul is focused on for the local church is that they would position themselves in a way where they are not seen as so offensive that nobody wants to hear the gospel of Christ. It's like, do any of you, um, like, you're all better people than me, right? Like, we've established this on many occasions. Um, But there are certain ways that people can dress and present themselves that as soon as they start talking, I go, I can't take you seriously. Like, is, does anyone else have that? Like, like in, in, um, and I, I'm going to give an example of one that is not true for me so that I won't be outed as, oh, well, Caleb thinks that this is, you know, right? But, you know, like I've seen uh, the internet meme, right? Like, you know, someone who wears their pants too low. There are some people who are like, well, if your pants aren't up around your hips, I can't take you seriously. Now, again, I don't care where you wear your pants, but there are other things that I'm a little prejudiced against, and I'm like, I can't take you seriously. Like, like if someone walks in wearing a Michigan sweatshirt, I don't care what they have to say. I can't take them seriously. Like, you've already established that you have terrible judgment. I have no interest in hearing you. And I think Paul is paying attention to this. He recognizes that there are ways that we can carry ourselves. There are ways that we can um, choose to either fit in or fit out, which will have an impact on whether people can hear the gospel presentation coming from us. And I think that's, that's something we should be mindful of. Are we, are we paying attention to the message that we are giving the world in the way that we behave. Because, you know, I think it's true. Like, we are free in Christ to do just about anything that, you know, like, like we can let our, uh, let our flag fly. What's, what's the, there's, a, there's like a phrase, I don't know. And I'm, she's laughing at me because she knows exactly what I'm trying to think of, and I don't know what it is. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can be you, right? Like, there, this is not the sort of thing where, where there is a, um, like, there is not one particular way to look and dress and act if you're a Christian. But I think there is a sense that in the same way that Paul would go on to say, I have, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, 
take advantage of this freedom, but I submit to that which is around me so that the gospel can be heard, that I think he encourages us to do the same thing. Like the culture that we find ourselves in, the people who God has brought us to be in the midst of, we can embrace that so that we are heard. Um, One of my my heroes uh, in the faith is a guy named uh, Hudson Taylor. Um, He revolutionized the way we thought about missions work. Um, At the time when there were missionaries going out into uh, you know, the, the far reaches of the world. Um, you know, they'd go and they'd dress in European clothing and they would take European culture with them. And it was to the point where um, there are some places in India where you know that someone was had the gospel taken to them by this certain group of missionaries because they have names like Danny Smith. Because, like, what the message was is, you know, if you want to be a Christian, it's not just believing that that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he is risen from the dead and that he's Lord, but no, no, no. If you want to be a Christian, you need to get rid of that Indian name and take an English one, which is nonsense. And that's part of why I have so much respect for Hudson Taylor, because he went to China and adopted Chinese dress. He adopted Chinese culture. He said the gospel is not dependent on you becoming English. The gospel is dependent on you embracing the work of Jesus on the cross, that he is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Man, that was a tangent. That had nothing to do with Paul, but... I think it's important, right? Like, this is, this, is, this is what, like, if we don't recognize the fullness of the arguments that Paul is making in these letters, then it gets really easy to lock in on two verses and just be like, hey, ladies, zip it. Which is wrong. It's not what Paul is saying, and it's not what God wants for us. Because in a church where one of the women is a licensed local pastor, it can be really awkward to just stand up here and preach on uh, women talking or not talking in church and have your female pastor sit silently in the pew. So, Caleb, thank you for your humility. Our third scripture this morning also comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. (sighs) And then Paul goes on to say, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And Caleb stole my thunder just a little bit, but that's okay. Um, So I was raised a Baptist. And part uh, part of my formation in church was that you always bring your Bible with you. This is the book that God speaks to us through throughout the week. And when you bring it to church, you become more familiar with it. And you can underline passages that the pastor might preach from that means something to you. Um, So I grew up doing that. um, And I do that most of the time still. I have not fully accommodated to the more Methodist tradition of us not bringing our Bibles to church. There's no judgment when I say that. It's just been really weird for me. 
Um, so if you go to the book of Ephesians, it's easy for a preacher to stand up and start preaching at Ephesians 5.22 because in most Bibles, there is a break there. Later in life, I learned that the Bible, I mean, I knew the Bible wasn't written in English. That's a no-brainer, right? The King James Version is not the Bible Jesus read. But that's funny if you come from, a, anyway. Um, <laughs> the Bible is written in Greek and is written in such a way that not only are there not paragraph separations, there are not separations between the words. If you look at it, it looks like people just drew a bunch of characters on the page. So we have to be really careful reading scripture because we have to remember that these breaks that are put in there, there are good reasons for them to be there because it helps us when we translate scripture into English and it helps us follow along. And that verse, submit to one another out of reverence from God, there's some debate as to where that belongs. But here's what I can tell you. It belongs in part, it leads into the next set of verses. Now, why am I going back and covering that? Because we already kind of did. Um, when I started to become a feminist, I started to have some issues with St. Paul the Apostle. Women, is there anyone here who has found themselves at some point having some issues with St. Paul the Apostle? Yes, look, look at my bold sisters. Look at my bold sisters. Because I would read through Ephesians, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I'd get to verse 522. And I saw wives submit to your husbands. And then I'd go to the church, and our pastor would preach about Christian households, and I would hear that my husband is the head of the household, and that I am to submit to him. And that is not the agreement he and I entered into when we got married. We both took the same vow. We promised to care for and love each other. Now, I recognize that there are things that Tyler is skilled in that I am not. And when it comes to technology or anything that operates with gears or batteries, I submit completely to my husband and his knowledge. And there are areas in life where I had more experience raising children. I helped raise my brother and sister. They were born when I was 15 or 12 and 15, and I had to take care of them in the evenings when my parents worked. I knew this gig already, and he recognized that. And when I said, no, we need to do this, he's like, oh, okay. Right? Like, there's a mutual, there's always been a mutual submission in my relationship with my husband. So these words, when we tried to be faithful Christians, according to the pastor, this damaged our marriage. It was not good for us. And I struggled with that because I thought, how can I, as a disciple of Jesus, not enact what scripture clearly teaches? Am I a bad disciple? And I got mad at Paul and I got a little mad at God. But what I want to share today isn't even necessarily about those verses. Because the reality is there are a lot of hard verses in scripture. A lot. 
So now, men and women, don't care who you are, if you have ever read something in Scripture and you're like, I don't get this, God, how could you or anyone who loves you say this? Raise your hand. That's right. There are a lot of hard passages in Scripture. So really, this morning, as a woman who preaches, as um, a woman who loves the writings of the Apostle Paul, what I really want to talk about with you is what do we do with these really hard passages of Scripture? Because when I went to the commentaries to look at the scripture that Caleb was preaching from, some of what I found was this. Oh, you know, this verse doesn't fit nicely in here, and we think that Paul probably didn't write that. Or I read the writings of another United Methodist um, pastor, and he writes, you know, you can think about scripture like this. There are three ways to categorize scripture. Um, And I don't want to misquote, so I actually have this to read from my phone. Okay, so there's scripture that expresses God's heart and character and timeless will for human beings. And then there's scripture that expresses God's will in a particular time, but are no longer binding. And then there's scripture that never fully expressed the heart or character or will of God. I find these completely unhelpful. And here's why. Uh, This book says some really, really hard things. But it is the book of the church. And I don't like all of the things that it says. But it is the tradition of the church that we recognize all of these books in their entirety as the word of God. Now, when I say word of God, I don't mean in the same way that Jesus is word of God. I don't worship a book. I worship the living Lord. I worship Father God and Holy Spirit, but I believe that this book, that God has used this book in the life of his church through the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, to rebuke us, to correct us, that every word in this book is profitable, and that everything that I need to know about who God is, who I am, and what I need to do or who we need to be, it's all found in this book. When I say, this is the inspired word of God, that is what I mean. So, thank you, sister. So what do we do when we get to something that we read in here and we're like, oh, how can that be God? Here's what I suggest. Stop and pray. This book is not like other books. I can sit down and read books about church history, and I can sit down and read fiction books and nonfiction books, and God can speak to me through those words. But when I sit down and I read the book of the church, the book that belongs to the people of God, I am totally reliant upon the Holy Spirit who founded the church. Before I read scripture, I pray. And if I get to something in scripture that's really, really hard, which only takes like, you know, a few paragraphs, I stop and I pray again. And then I keep reading. 
Because in Ephesians, if you start with verse 22 and you keep going for a woman, this can feel like the men being in charge telling you what to do and you don't understand the word of God enough or God's plan for humanity enough to get this whole thing, right? But if you read deeper, that's not necessarily what's going on here. Read more. Read further. Read deeper. But the biggest uh, tool in my toolbox for reading scripture is this. Um, so, so when you go to seminary and you talk to pastors about how we preach from the scripture, we have this really fancy word called, I'll probably mispronounce it, a hermeneutic. Okay? All this is is a recognition that we bring some type of lens to scripture. Okay? If somebody tells you, oh, I just sit down my Bible and read it for what it's worth, they don't understand the Bible. The Bible is really complicated. Now, you can sit down and read things for what they're worth, but you have to remember, I'm reading history from an ancient viewpoint. I'm reading poetry. I'm reading a parable. I'm reading the gospel. I'm reading a letter from Paul to others. I'm reading, reading a letter from Peter to others. I'm reading prophecy that uses this weird and frightening imagery that doesn't make sense to me. The Bible isn't always an easy book to read, and that's okay. You can take it at face value, but you're not going to get very deep. So hermeneutics. When Caleb says, you know, we talk, some traditions talk about women in the church, and they look at these two verses, or three verses, there are actually several, and then they understand everything else through them. That's a hermeneutic. Brothers and sisters, our hermeneutic as Methodist is the risen cross and the empty tomb. We can't separate out anything in this book because it all points to the risen Lord and the empty tomb. Go back and read the Old Testament. There's another um, well-known pastor that I love dearly that has, like, helped me as a pastor. Um, and unfortunately, he, you know, kind of at one point said that, you know, we're people of the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. No! <laughs> Repent! We need the Old Testament because that is the scripture of the people of God. That is the scripture Jesus read and the scripture Jesus fulfills. It's important. And as Christians, we read it knowing who Jesus is. Because when you know Jesus, who Jesus is and you know that that tomb is empty, it changes everything in this book. The entire story of Israel, the story of God and his people is recorded here. This book contains everything that we need to know to come to salvation. So that's my hermeneutic for reading scripture. So when I read those things from Paul that are difficult, and I weigh the academic, you know, the opinions, and oh, we found a different manuscript, and oh, look, here's a writing from the ancient world where they use this same word as Paul, and so maybe this means, I, I read all of that, and I'm thankful for that work. But ultimately, I look to the risen tomb, uh, for Paul's letters, I remember that Paul is writing to a people, 
And it's not that what he says to them doesn't apply to us, because it does. Just not at a face value level. This isn't Paul's time. So we have to apply it a different way. But when I read those letters, I remember that whenever you have a letter, you have a conversation, right? So Maya and her friend are sending letters back and forth. They, they live about two hours apart, her and her best friend, they're pen pals too. I can't pick up one of those letters and read them and know exactly what's going on because I don't have the other letters. The reality is we don't know what Paul was talking about with those churches every single time, right? That's okay. So when I come across hard things, I am willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. I am willing to say this is still the inspired word of God and read it and move on knowing that Jesus Christ died for me, that he was buried in a tomb and three days later was resurrected, that he has come and made a way for us to be in relationship with God the Father. And women, since we have been talking about these hard verses, I just want to tell you that this book is really good news for you. Now, men, it's good news for you too, but I'm going to take a minute and talk to the women here. So, we're going to start in Genesis. And in Genesis, we have poetry that goes through how it is that God created the earth. Now, I don't actually care about the argument as to whether or not Genesis is literal or figurative. I'm not interested. What I'm interested in is what Genesis teaches me about God. So we see that God created the earth out of love, out of an overflow of love, and he calls the earth good. And then we get to God created the first human, and this was Adam, the man, right? And Adam comes, and he comes up, and he names all of the creatures, and in all of this, he doesn't find an equal partner. So God looks down, and this is the first time God says something is not good when he looks down and sees that Adam is alone. Women, the Bible uses the word helper for Eve, but it is not helper as in second rate or second class. That word is also used by King David to describe the Lord. So let's start there, women. Now let's move forward to the moment where we decide to rebel against God. And Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are in the garden. And the serpent comes up and talks to Eve. And the serpent's like, hey, did God tell you to do this? She's like, yeah. He's like, well, did God tell you to do this? She's like, look, we aren't even supposed to look at the fruit, right? Like, we are not supposed to have that fruit. It's going to be okay. Okay, maybe I'll try it. And then she turns around and hands it to Adam, who just eats the fruit too, right? Like Adam and Eve, we're in this together, sisters, okay? And then when Christ, or when God comes and he proclaims the natural outcome of what has happened, he talks about the broken relationship between man and woman. That women are going to desire power, that men will lord it over them. But he says something really, really, really important here to Eve. He says, the serpent will strike at you. He'll strike your heel. 
You and your children, you're going to crush his head. So we fast forward to a young girl in Nazareth, and and, uh, her name is Mary. She's poor. She has no social status. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's what is said later in the gospel. And Mary does the exact opposite of what Eve did. And Mary, a woman, gives birth to the Son of God. And from there on out, we see a complete change in the way that women interact with God. One of the earliest uh, people to proclaim Jesus as Messiah was a woman who was a Samaritan, meaning that the Jews understood her to be their enemy, who went to the well in the middle of the day instead of the beginning of the day, which tells me she probably didn't fit in because women, you know that if you don't want to be judged, you just don't go to where the people who are judging you are, right? So she goes in the middle of the day when no one else is there, and Jesus speaks to her, and she says, oh, he's the Messiah, and she goes to her community and tells them. One of the first people to proclaim the gospel. And then the risen tomb, who was there? Mary. Mary. The women were there. Now, I had a pastor say, well, that's because they were doing what they're supposed to do. And if you do what you're supposed to do, you're going like, to be okay, too, and God can use you. I saw some women go, oh, yeah. But here's the thing. The women were with Jesus this whole time out of their love for him. This was not about responsibility. This was about care and love. And the tomb was empty, and they ran back and told the disciples. Women, this is a good book for you. Because so many of us have been told that we are almost second class. So many of us have been told that our value is based upon our appearance, how we do our hair, how we wear our makeup, what clothes we wear. Are you fighting those wrinkles? Are you staying fit? There is no other no other revelation of God that frees women the way that Jesus Christ does. We don't set separate from our men. We have women working in the early church all the way up to this very day. Not just Phoebe, we have Lydia, we have Priscilla, we have, oh, there's a litany. Yes, Caleb's sitting here naming them. I didn't write them all down, so I can't, but that's okay. We have women who sat at the feet of Jesus, which meant that they were disciples just like the men. Women, this is a good book with good news for you. And I am thankful. Yes, yes, men, this is a good book with good news for you. So I'm not a man. I don't know what that experience is like, but I know that my husband was told that he should be the primary breadwinner so that I could stay home and raise the children. And let me tell you that Jesus frees him from that. That he and I are co-laborers in our house and in the Lord. That that responsibility is not solely his to bear. And I assume that men, you get some heat, uh, just like we women do, but maybe it's about your muscles, 
Maybe it's about, I don't know. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> this book is good news for you because if women are free, so are men. This book is good news for our neighbors who don't look like us because they are equal. This book is good news because it tells us of God's great love for every single one of us. Doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter if we're male or female, doesn't matter what our ethnicity is, doesn't matter whether we were raised poor or whether our family had money. That in the eyes of God, we are all equally loved, we are all equally called. And God loves us to the point that when we broke this world, he couldn't just sit by and watch us continue to suffer. This book is good news. I encourage you to pick it up daily, to read it, to pray. You pick up your scripture and you turn to the words of the Apostle Paul, here are some of the things you hear. Here's why Paul isn't going to be canceled. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And from 2 Timothy, one of the letters that women struggle with the most. Lead the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I find it really hard to want to cancel a man who would write that. I find it really hard to want to do away or separate out any words of this book. It's not my book to even do that with. It's the book of the church. But these are words that give us life. Today we're going to celebrate communion together. And we're going to remember our Lord, who brings the freedom that Paul writes about. 
our Lord Jesus, whom the women served, who the martyrs died professing, who sent the Holy Spirit, who is God in flesh, showing us what it means to live as children of God. If you will take your hymnal.